where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, once a month, we do these After Dark episodes with Emily Jashinsky, who um, has wears many hats, but is the, primarily the culture editor over at The Federalist, whose studio we're so kindly using. Um, <laughs> and she's also training up the next generation of conservative, intrepid journalists over at the Young America's Foundation. Um, and she's just a cultural commentator generally. I, As I said last time, primarily go to her for Real Housewives takes, but she's <laughs> she's got other takes on on broader subjects than the Real Housewives. Uh, so I hope you tune in for these After Dark episodes where we also imbibe Prosecco while talking about the future of the country. Um, the, the first subject I really wanted to get into with you, Emily, was um, there's there's been a divorce of sorts. Uh, and as a mm. social conservative, it's one of the few divorces that I've ever thought was a really great thing. Um, <laughs> but but it seems that the GOP Whose is... Whose fault is it? Is it a no fault? <laughs> I mean, it's like a both fault divorce yeah. <laughs> uh, between uh, the Republican Party and the Chamber of Commerce. So um, could you just lay out why we think there is a divorce? Just briefly, the, the facts of the matter. Um, and, and then also, you know, what you think about this, because this, this, I think, is a, a very significant development in terms of the trajectory of the right and the left in this country. Absolutely. Uh, this week, as we're taping, um, Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Minority Leader, leader gave an interview to uh, Breitbart in which he said the chamber left the party a long time ago. He sort of fingered wokeness as the culp of the culprit um, for this divorce and laid into the Chamber of Commerce and talked about how they were endorsing people um, against like obviously free market people. And then I checked in with a source connected to Republican leadership who said they intentionally implemented a strategy intentionally to elect Democrats, that the Chamber of Commerce was intentionally seeking to elect Democrats. They had endorsed in 2020 what the source described to me as, quote, margin makers. Um, and that means that like they were endorsing people who, without them, Democrats may not have kept the House or may not have won the House. And so that's a, a huge source of frustration for Republicans. But at the same time, they're like good riddance because there's these new small dollar fundraising mechanisms. It's not the old sort of fundraising days. But if you do go back and you look at open secrets, Republicans have gotten um, a lot of money from <laughs> a lot of money from uh, the Chamber of Commerce, a lot of endorsements from the Chamber of Commerce. And there's basically just been this understanding that the Republican Party is the party of the Chamber of Commerce. You might have a couple business friendly Democrats in particular areas in particular states, but by and large, it was, as Ryan Grimm described it in The Intercept in 2020, an appendage of the GOP, basically. So this is a divorce that is not only symbolic, but sim but substantively um, a uh, an indicator of the, uh, the corporate America's divorce from the Republican Party. And that actually really does liberate the Republican Party to do all kinds of things, and then may, of course, um, entrap Democrats in the sort of chamber mindset. Um, you know, yeah, it, it, it's funny because if I had heard this several years ago, I would have been like, you know, why, why would the Chamber of Commerce do something like this just because, right? It's, it was so obvious that Republicans were in favor of, um, you know, they were the ones who were in favor of limited government. They were the ones in favor of a pro-business climate, right? They were the ones that this is all this traditional sort of 2012 Mitt Romney-esque like yes. Republican Party yes. stuff. Um, and it, this would make absolutely no sense. Why would the Chamber of Commerce elect Democrats? But we we hear it now, and it makes complete sense. Uh, in in the days of woke capitalism, right? In in the in the days where corporations are a major player against basically every conservative or even moderate cultural battle. Um, here I'm thinking of, for example, uh, state voting legislation where famously, you know, corporations threatened to boycott states. They've, they've threatened to the boycott all -star states. Game. The all-star game. Um, OSHA, the OSHA mandate, the vaccine mandate by OSHA, the Chamber of Commerce endorsed it, Biden's uh, vaccine mandate. They, they endorsed, um, along with basically every corporate, recognizable corporate entity in America, um, they endorsed the, the Equality Act as well. <laughs> That's a so, really good one. It's, it, this is not surprising, but I feel like it's still very significant that this, because what we've seen, I think, is that the establishments of both parties have cling to the, the, the sort of forms mm. um, of the previous coalitions and are not 
very quick to respond to those tectonic plates moving uh, of where the actual bases of both parties and the different kind of coalition groups um, in, in America on the ground of actual voters are moving. And, and this shows that, in fact, there is some of this that's trickling up to the actual structure mm. of the parties. But, you know, I think some of some of the influences on the Republican Party will be pretty obvious. But how is this going to influence the Democratic Party? Do you think that this is going to, um, you know, spell the the death knell for for sort of the Senator Sanders wing of, of the of the Democratic Party? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, because this is something that the far left kind of struggles with, too. And when they talk about media bias and when they talk about the Democratic establishment, it's completely true that the Democratic establishment sort of hates them um, and, you know, loathes them. But in it's it's absolutely important to understand that's primarily on economic issues. But even on economic issues, the center has been dragged so far left by the Bernie Sanders wing and and by the fact that they have gained so much, um, by the fact that voters were so hungry for Bernie Sanders. I mean, he trounced Hillary Clinton in a state like Wisconsin, uh, lest the Nancy Pelosi's of the world forget. And that's a big deal. And so it's sort of the same on the right and the left. They have these populist strains. And the question is, who's going to win this tug of war? But on the left, those cultural issues, the entire Democratic establishment is completely on board with the cultural agenda of the radical far left, the Equality Act, and as which you are literally an expert on, is a great example of a piece of legislation that is so radical, it would have been laughed out of the mainstream by everybody, what, like, 10 years ago, if not less than two years ago. Yeah, right, right, right. And so, um, but the fact that you have literally the Chamber of Commerce, the entire infrastructure of corporate America says that it's necessary in a matter of human rights to pass this ridiculous piece of legislation, it tells you how far the Democratic establishment has come culturally on these issues. So yes, the Democratic establishment is still sort of pro-business, pro-corporate media, um, but you know they have gone pretty far to the left on certain things. They are in favor of uh, like student loan debt forgiveness. They are in favor, in many cases, of Medicare for All or some fairly radical version of healthcare reform. Um, and they, yeah, so it, it, it's true. I get the left's frustration on this, but on cultural issues, they're so radically far left. It explains why something like the Chamber of Commerce would end up, uh, you know, distancing itself from Republicans. Yeah. I, I mean, um, at this point, and I, I never ha- thought I'd hear myself say this at this point, I, I regard any corporate influence. Um, and I am totally in favor of, you know, Citizens United still, I still think it's, <laughs> I, I still think that it's the correct decision under the First Amendment, and if we want to change that, I think yes. we have to we have to amend the Constitution. Um, but you know, I, I I was always somebody who was skeptical of the narrative that corporate money really drives a lot of politics, mm-hmm. um, especially generally donors um, in in politics. I feel like more often than not than people think are following is in donors are lining up with institutions and parties that they already agree with. And, mm-hmm. the, and so they are backing with dollars and making more successful uh, the, the sort of positions that are already in existence mm-hmm. rather than like sort of manipulating behind the scenes to change different positions. Uh, but I really feel differently now about corporate influence um, when, when they're willing to wield it so far as, as Vivek Ramaswamy argues so well, I think, um, on a previous podcast guest, but, um, <laughs> you know, he, he really convincingly argues that they, that we need to find some kind of separation where we keep corporate power in its lane right. of, of the financial bottom line, because they are wielding it to affect so many other issues. Um, and, and really to, to like, we, like we were discussing right, just more recently, the NCAA, mm-hmm. um, changed the course of, legislation about women's sports right in in south dakota um now they, they reversed that they reversed that about a week ago or a couple weeks ago um they're they are going to advance some kind of bill on this but but the fact that you know the ncaa has is it double a i don't know anything about the sports ball oh my gosh <laughs> it's the ncaa yeah. it's not ncaa <laughs> I, was, I was just no, like what, what, what do people use double a or aa yeah <laughs> i am i'm like the worst sports ball person on the face of the planet a- and as, it's aa 
<laughs> something you might want to. <laughs> <laughs> we have the red solo cups here. So. Cheers. <laughs> um, no, but I, I really do think this is significant in terms of the agenda that can be then advanced politically in the Republican Party. And probably, I mean, as somebody who still does cling to ideas of limited government and, and individual <laughs> liberty and, and such outdated notions, constitution, um, the constitution, I, I am kind of, this, this could be the kind of the best of all worlds, right? If, if corporate influence moves from the Republican party into the democratic party, it's going to make, you know, a, a lot of, um, folks that I actually find insightful on, on these issues, but, um, sort of anti-woke Marxists, it's going to make them really mad and even more disillusioned from the democratic party. Um, but from my perspective, I think it's going to cause the reality that we've already seen peak socialism. Um, and it's going to moderate eventually where the Democratic Party is going on economics while freeing the Republican Party from their pernicious, their pernicious influence on culture. So as somebody who's socially and fiscally conservative, I feel like mm-hmm. this may be the, the best of all worlds. That's really interesting because... Um, <laughs> That's really interesting. So the NCAA issue is a good one because uh, the fact that Governor Nome caved on it, although she's taking a totally BS victory lap right now, it speaks to the power of the populist right, which prioritizes cultural issues in the same way the, the populist left prioritizes uh, economic issues, even though the populist left also has a problem with being radically and, and rapidly culturally um, leftist. But that's the that's such a good example because she caved on that after caving to like the chamber. Um, and so it, it really speaks to what a tug of war we're in. And the Democratic Party has... Um, been similar to the Republican Party. We have kind of this uniparty of the ruling class being corporate friendly. Um, If you look at like the trade policies of Bill Clinton, for example, the trade policies of George W. Bush, um, of Barack Obama, I mean, you can really see that. And that's the sense that like, I, I, I always go back to Charles Murray. And I feel like I always end up talking about Charles Murray on this podcast and in pretty much every conversation I have. But like, there's this mind meld between uh, people that sort of swim in the same waters in New York and DC and Los Angeles, um, people who just, it, it almost doesn't matter. Like Citizens United is a good example. That's something Republicans supported and people like Hillary Clinton decried. But Sasha Baron Cohen made that Borat movie and specifically came out and said he did it to influence the election. Um, he released it on Amazon. Amazon, one of the most major corporate platforms in the world, specifically to influence the election. Well, thank you for Citizens United, (laughs) Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, And these are the things that like Amazon would never release a movie and put a ton. They made that movie. That was an Amazon Studios project. They would never put their money behind something that was, you know, intentionally hoping to elect Donald Trump. (laughs) Um, And so I think it's it's this sort of tug of war in the uniparty. And you predicted, what, like two years ago that we'd seen peak socialism. And I said, Inez, you're, you're crazy. But I really do think there's a good, despite what we've just said, I do think there's a good argument for that. But I think it's because the Uniparty is above all absolutely obsessed with power. And uh, the Republican Party has been on top of this. And they, they recognize how poorly socialism polls, specifically with those suburban women in swing states that Democrats got from Trump. Um, and they don't like socialism. So that's where you might see, um, that the the far left having a real hard time persuading the establishment to really go gung ho and, and to continue going pedal to the metal on some like obviously socialist policies. Um, you know, I, I, the only thing I have to add to that analysis is that the, the uniparty that you're talking about, um, would not be, which, which I would roughly define as, sort of extreme culturally left Mm -hmm. fiscally, let's say sane to moderate. Um, and, uh, specifically, um, very technocratic, right. Very bureaucratic. And that's what I would kind of add to this analysis. You're talking about New York and, and DC, um, and, and sort of the uniparty there. And I totally agree with you. There's a Nacella corridor effect, right? Aren't you like literally about to get I on an Acela? I am literally about to. No, I'm not taking the Acela. I don't like the Acela. Right, anyway, um, not for populist reasons. Anyway, <laughs> uh, no, but I, I think that effect is real. 
But that is actually less important increasingly because all the institutions are so bought in that even if you're from Ohio or you're from Texas and you want to join pretty much any credentialing or like stamping yeah. uh, institution, you have to go through essentially the same indoctrination mm-hmm. and cultural melding into this this class. It's like a managerial class that's stamped by the universities, stamped, you know, by going to the right schools. And, and those schools are all teaching the same things. And even once you get out, you're supposed to increasingly profess those views, those cultural views, mm-hmm. and that that kind of cultural monopoly as you go about whether you're working in an, in an agency or whether you're working in academia or whether you're working in an HR department in Nike, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It, so I, I think it's much broader than the geographic focus now you're because right. they've taken over all of those institutions. I do agree that's where it kind of started, but I think it's much more powerful than that now. It's the top-down enforcement of it is from those places specifically. But yeah, and, and the, I will just add this quickly. I think Republicans and conservatives are very unwise to underestimate the extent to which this conditioning is deeply embedded in the minds of our generation, but especially people younger than us um, who have grown up. Well, with- younger than you, I'm old. Yes, that's right. <laughs> she said it, not me. Um, <laughs> who have grown up with every single institution, including especially, especially popular culture, telling them that every interaction they have with somebody of a different race is infected with systemic racism and that every institution in this country is infected with systemic racism, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's not just isolated to the Acela Corridor. So in terms of optimism, um, I about the GOP and, and maybe figuring out a little bit about how the world actually works, um, the Republican National Committee mm-hmm. uh, has issued an edict um, saying to, to their potential candidates saying that they will not be participating in certain corporate media debates. And in the past, this has been a big internal issue in the Republican Party. And I promise this podcast will not be about Republican Party, like back channels, the rest of it. But I, I <laughs> only pick these issues because I think that they are actually, they have consequences beyond this. I mean, do you, do you think that the actual establishment organs of the Republican Party and, and correspondingly the Democratic Party are starting to understand the landscape in which they reside? Or do you think that this is merely a sort of fundraising level move, i.e. they know their base hates the media, and so they're going to make a sort of grandstanding position on this? Um, Or does this reflect an actual deeper understanding that they they know they cannot continue to play what is essentially a rigged game um, that they pretend is, is sort of fairly decided? Yeah, and that's the so there were a lot of good signs this week. The chamber, uh, the McCarthy's comments about the chambers won. Um, McCarthy again actually came out against the January sixth committee and said, you know, this is uh, hyperpartisan and should we will not legitimize it with our participation, basically. And then you have this debate point, and these are all really good signs, um, but they are sort of style over substance, although I would argue not participating in the January 6th committee is pretty substantive. Um, and, and the RNC, if they keep holding fast to this, that will be, I think, remarkable because it would be really substantive if Republicans refused to be moderated by, um, as you just described, I think, excellently, and as um, people who are culturally radical liberals now. I mean, this is not as though it's this is not Walter Cronkite. This is not people who just sort of are center left. This is a, if you believe the Equality Act is a matter of human rights, you're a radical leftist. This is not um, the the sort of mainstream or center left anymore. I feel like I should jump in here and do what what we should have done initially, which is say that the Equality Act is something that redefined sex under the law and included civil rights protections on the basis of self-identified gender mm-hmm. uh, gender identity. Right. So this would be every every institution or or um, Every uh, female-only space, whether that's that's prisons, um, female prisons, or or women's sports, for example, would be affected by this. Uh, so it's incredibly radical, and obviously, we're dealing with all of those issues in, in all the states. Um, and and on the federal level, they found other ways to redefine sex, whether that's issuing um, issuing regulations or dear colleague letters through the the sort of technocratic and bureaucratic co- uh, process. So they're trying to skin this cat in many different ways. But this was national civil rights legislation, which would have enshrined 
the idea that you cannot distinguish between a, a like biological man and woman. So it's very radical. It's extremely radical. And, you know, that's I, I pretty much guarantee you every presidential debate moderator when pressed in public would say, yes, absolutely. I support this imp- important piece of legislation. Um, and I remember actually when Mary Catherine Hamm moderated a CNN debate in what was that, 2016? It was yeah. fantastic. It was it was absolutely fantastic. In the same way, it's great when Rachel Maddow uh, moderates a Democratic debate. I mean, it just makes way more sense. And it is absolutely absurd to have people who are just by nature of perceiving themselves as neutral, anti-conservative, moderate these debates. Because to be neutral in the Beltway, and I'm speaking to somebody who lives here and has lived here for a while, it is to be neutral is to be center left at best, um, but to be sort of far left on cultural issues and center left on business issues or on economic issues. It makes absolutely no sense to continue subjecting this important process of vetting nominees to people who hate you, essentially, like think that you're a bigot. Um, and in this environment, I mean, the, the test will be whether the RNC follows through on this, but it's at least great signaling. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's my my worry is that there is a space between the establishment of the party figuring out that talking about these issues is a good way to get the base out and excited and donating and voting, um, which I mean, I, I do think is an improvement over the previous yeah, strategy, so is. which is ignore the cultural issues and, and completely ignore sort of this systemic march through the institutions of the left. And denigrate people who are trying to fight that. Right. Um, I, I think that's an improvement, but it's not the improvement we need at this moment in time, I think, in the country when we really do need to convert that energy into actual I'll use the the word systemic change Mm -hmm. in a lot of these institutions. And that's going to require smart policy thinking, but it's also going to require a sustained effort, legislative effort um, from, from the party that opposes it, which right now is the Republican party. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess, so the election in Virginia um, Mm -hmm. is really a key uh, thing for me in this regard. What Glenn Youngkin in Virginia actually ends up doing on the issue of education uh, which it's really hard to deny that it that issue was key in getting him elected. And and this is the, the thing that, you know, um, that I always repeat and you always repeat. And like, we understand this, that in fact, a lot of those, those voters that are not attached, they're not like base voting Republicans, you know, they're not, they haven't voted Republican for five out of five of the last elections. Right. Um, they are independents. In many cases, they are even Democrats. Um, the way to get those people um, and convince them is is not by by fiscal issues. It's through culture war issues. Mm-hmm. That is the those are the big ten issues where you we actually you know those of us on the right actually agree with moderates, agree with a not insubstantial number of Democrats. Um, so that those are the opportunities, and that's what happened in Virginia was those voters decided on the basis of some of those those cultural issues like you know, school closures, like what was actually being taught in, in, uh, with regard to race and gender ideology in schools. Um, you know, those issues are why they voted mm-hmm. Republican and elected Glenn Youngkin. Mm-hmm. And what I'm terrified is going to happen is one, the Republican party will find a way to screw this up. Like they always do. Um, they're not going to convert that into actual measurable change for these parents and then those parents are just going to give up on the GOP because they're not there for the rest of the conservative agenda. They're there for these specific issues because they're really scared of where the left is going on them. And and so what I'm I'm like really hoping doesn't happen is that the GOP messages on on all the quote unquote right stuff from from you know what you from our perspective your yours and mine. Um, but then goes right back to the same agenda when they actually get power. And I just don't think we can afford that. So the only I share that concern completely, and I think you have even more insight to this than I do, um, especially on the education beat. The only thing I would say, the only note of optimism I would sound for you is that it actually depends on how much the Democrats drop the ball as well. So if the the, both parties are going to fail voters broadly, they always do, always, almost always, at least from a 30,000 foot view. Um, But the question then becomes whether Republicans screw up worse than Democrats do. And I just don't think it's possible at this point to be worse than Democrats on some of these culture issues because they're in such a bubble 
They allow in zero criticism. There is no free exchange of ideas, which lets these bad ideas metastasize in a way that continues making them worse and worse and worse because there's no fresh air, there's no debate. Um, and they just keep getting more and more radical in a way that is very, very harmful to normal Americans. Um, and so to the extent that Republicans uh, don't translate it into policy, yeah, I share those concerns absolutely 100%. Kevin McCarthy, while we're praising him, he deserves criticism. This week, he released a tweet that sort of summarized his plank for, for Republicans take back the House. Um, and it was his, his uh, campaign platforms, um, if Republicans take back, take back the House. And one of them was like, reform section 230 i think but one of them was like uh energy independence and one of them was like a parental bill of rights and it's like yes i've got you on the parental bill of rights but whatever that is is just like toothless and meaningless like you need to do way more than that this is systemic neo-racism embedded in our system through public schools and like great i'm glad that you have this idea of a parent's bill of rights but like and I, and I think, you know, energy independence is great, but the way you're talking about this feels like 2014. And it, and it indicates to me that if you get power again, we're going to get another round of tax cuts, which I do think help the middle class, but I don't think uh, we're as high of a priority as some of the cultural issues are. They never want to pass legislation on abortion. They never want to pass legislation on uh, things that matter to, to social conservatives, which by that we now have to include a huge swath of people in the middle because conservatism is now anything slightly to the left of whatever Lena Dunham is thinking at the moment. So it just, I, I, I would not underestimate the ability of Democrats to drop the ball even harder than Republicans. So, so here's why I'm not encouraged by that analysis. I think it's all true, but it's a kind of house always wins situation. <laughs> Whichever team holds the institutions, which is overwhelmingly. Yeah team left yep. like they can afford to drop the ball that might be like a political solution about who gets elected like republicans may be able to drop the ball and still get elected although i think it'll be it'll be harder for them but time is not on our side no i agree right? i agree every every year that we don't do something about it this a, n a new year of cultural revolutionaries are graduating mm -hmm. into every private institution and every institution or every like holdout mm -hmm. in the country and so they don't really need to get their agenda through right now they literally can just wait um and it'll it'll get worse and i think a lot of people in the country feel that way right that's kind of why it feels so inerexable it feels so um you know just that every every year things get worse with regard to the cultural issues and and it's very rare that we actually feel like we got a victory or that we actually push back effectively on any of this stuff because that's the default motion now. The default motion is left culturally, and it'll it'll just a matter of it's going to go a little slower or a little faster. Uh, without like, isn't the Republicans need to act in order to stop that dynamic? So if they don't act, but even if the Democratic Party doesn't act, that dynamic continues. But um, you know, I just that's what makes me worried. I really do think, and and again, I'm not saying things about the Republican Party and the Democratic Party because I, I'm particularly partisan or, or care so much about that. But those are the vehicles through which like the Republican Party is the only hope right now for any of the <laughs> yeah. cultural important like sort of vehicles because as as we discussed earlier, the Democratic Party, all the influences and then you see this, they can't turn around. They can't U-turn, even though there are important voices in the party that are like, oh hey guys, this is really unpopular and it's losing us races. There's so much institutional power behind this far left cultural perspective that it's impossible for the party to actually slam on the brakes, even as many of the members are like, hold up, hold up. This is really bad for our election chances. Yeah. And the only the only thing I'll add to that um, is just I think it's and I did a a piece on this this week, I think it's very hard to have these conversations about politics without recognizing the context of the sort of hyper novel world that we live in, as Brett Weinstein and Heather Hyang have, have talked about. Um, you know, when Betty White died, I discovered that she was on an experimental broadcast. Her first experience on television was a freaking experimental broadcast in 1939. That is the year The Wizard of Oz came out. It's the year Gone with the Wind came out. She was 17. She was 17 years old in 1939 when she was on an experimental broadcast of TV. She died in the age of streaming. 
that's how new some of these technologies are. And I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday um, and they were like, well, hyper novelty can't just be the explanation for all of this because we saw sort of post-modernity start to um, eat away at the cultural fabric before TV was really popularized. And it's like, well, actually hyper novelty goes back way further than TV. It, you know, it, it's the blink of an eye in the scope of human history and our bodies aren't meant to live like this. This is making me sound like really Marianne Williamson. Um, but our bodies aren't meant to live like this. We are certainly not meant to communicate in this way. We are not meant to litigate our politics in this way. We're not meant to uh, litigate our culture in this way. And I think, you know, that's, when we talk about the institutions being all owned by the left and the fact that there's now substacks creeping uh, into the discourse and there are competitive institutions being built up, I do see it as a race against the clock, exactly what you just said, Inez, and I've written that before. It's, it feels like a race against the clock because so much of this tech is anti-human. Um, it's the metaverse, profoundly anti-human, but one of the most powerful companies in the world will profit more and more the more and more of our lives we live in virtual reality. And that sounds like science fiction, but it's imminent. They changed their name to Meta. Facebook did just a couple months ago. Um, and so I do see this race against the clock, but in ways that are more political, that are more than just politics in ways that are um, just sort of about our, our humanity. And if we can sort of use our system, which is the best system that's ever been created, I think in the history of the world uh, for such a multi-ethnic and massive geographic swath of the world um you know maybe things can be adjusted and balanced out but it's it's scary yeah you know um there, there's another aspect uh I, that i another way in which i feel this is a race against the clock and that's we are all of what you just said plus the ideology is creating more people who are mentally on the edge plus like oh, isolation yeah. from the pandemic mm -hmm. we're creating more mentally unhealthy people than we ever have i feel like maybe that's i don't know i don't know no, what, it's true. what the mental frame was like in you know roman times so i really can't i can't make that overwhelming statement but at least in in you know more modern history and and mary ever sat another podcast guest um mm. you know i, I think writes really convincingly about this where she points out that we've lost all the normal ways to define ourselves or think about ourselves. We, we, you know, God is dead. Uh, so we, we can't define ourselves that way as children of God. Um, you know, families are broken down. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and each individual instance of that is a tragedy, but may, you know, may have like, you know, some, it may be the best situation for an individual family, but, but on the societal level to have this high level of family breakdown means that we lose the ability to define ourselves in the second most natural way, right? Yep. Uh, religion and, you know, I'm, I'm a wife, um, you know, for people with kids, it's defining themselves as a mother or a father or a, a daughter or a son to their parents. Like that's another very natural human source of meaning and identity. <laughs> Um, and as those things strip away, I feel like people are, they're so vulnerable to thinking that, you know, I was thinking about the other day, like they, people think that there is something deeply wrong mm -hmm. with them because they're suffering. And we have this whole, which every human being in the history of time does um, but we have one, we've stripped away any access to other people's deep wisdom on dealing with the human condition. Mm -hmm. And we've taken away those bases of natural identity mm -hmm. that actually like makes sense in a biological sense yep. for us. Yep. Um, and what we're left with is this sort of crazy making free floating self definition that literally makes us insane. I, I actually, yes. you know, believe that, um, anti-humanism. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a way in which that that is very deeply anti-human. Um, but we'd be amiss if we didn't cover uh, another issue um, that, that cropped up in, in, in the last couple of weeks, which is uh, the SCOTUS striking down the vaccine mandate. Um, and, and my initial take was like, OK, good. I'm glad we have a Supreme Court um, that takes the Constitution seriously. Um, but it almost matters less than I would have thought it does. Uh, one, because 
the bat signal already went out to all mm. the corporations. Mm-hmm. Is there going to, are, do you think that major corporations are going to reverse their internal vaccine mandates now that it's been struck down by the Supreme Court? Or do you think they're just going to continue? They're going to take that ball from government. You know, the Supreme Court is going to say, government, you can't do this. And they're going to just run with the same thing privately, which seems like how so many issues are ending up being framed these days. Yeah, I think it's just it's a matter of how effective that was. I think the Biden administration intentionally implemented that mandate sort of symbolically by citing the authority of OSHA um, in order to really intimidate businesses into implementing something and to intimidate people into getting vaccinated and boosted uh, for fear of not being allowed into various different businesses. So if, you know, Goldman or whatever it is, uh, whatever it's uh, Amazon, whatever institute, major corporate institution it is that really set the tone for others, um, if they find that there are a lot of people who just don't want to comply with this, um, I could I could see it sort of melting away gradually over the next couple of months. If it turned out that most people did it, um, then maybe not. But that's sort of I feel like that's one of those things that's just up in the air, depending on the next few weeks, few months. Yeah, I, I was telling you before we went on air that, you know, from on a personal level, I really hope that New York doesn't update its mandates to include the boosters because <laughs> I was vaccinated and then had COVID and I'm not getting a, that was my booster. Uh, <laughs> going through COVID was my booster. Omicron was my booster. Um, for, for many, many people. Yeah, yeah. we're going to get natural immunity from it. But, um, you know, on another level, on a kind of political level, I kind of almost hope that New York does update it because mm-hmm. it'll go from 80% in, you know, a lot of places where they're enforcing it strictly like in Manhattan, you know, approaching 90% of people who do qualify, which makes it really easy to sort of shun the unbeliever yeah. because it doesn't actually affect them um, versus overnight. If they require a booster, the vast majority of people are going to be, are not going to qualify. I'm sure some of them are going to then go ahead and and get their booster, but which by the way, I'm not at all against, like, I think it's probably wise for many people to get a booster, but um, I think I know I, I, you know, my parents got boosters and mm-hmm. I'm glad that they did. Um, so it's, it's, it's not the, the vaccine itself that I'm, I'm concerned about, but I, I wonder if the only way we are going to melt or roll back any of this stuff is if there's a critical mass of people who don't qualify and therefore can't, you know, sort of imagine that it's 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 the icky deplorables yeah. or it's the it's the you know, um, I think that becomes much harder when you have 60, 70 percent of people who don't qualify for that kind of mandate. Yeah, I think we're making the same argument, actually, that like if it if. I don't know what these corporations numbers are across the country outside places with like Manhattan or DC, which is about to implement a very stringent um, requirement. If they didn't have a lot of people um, that, that, that got boosted or got the second shot or got the first shot, then I think that changes it. But Omicron is really a, an incredible stress test for this. And we're not going to know for the next couple weeks, two to three weeks, um, what the total effect of it was. But I think so many people are, are in your shoes. They got Omicron. And they don't want to get boosted. In fact, some of the medical advice is not to get boosted. Um, and so I think in the next few weeks, this will become increasingly clear. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I just wonder which way this is going to go. Although like selfishly, I don't want them to do that because I like going to restaurants. In New York, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's probably not a good enough reason to post. I will probably not. But, um, <laughs> I don't know. I really like restaurants. No, I, uh, I just wanted to hit one last subject before we do the wrap up and, and talk about our undercovered things for the week. You've got a train to catch. Yeah. I, I well, you, you called me the Acela dweller, yeah. so <laughs> it's not actually the Acela. It's a different train. Uh, um, but yes, I have Northeast to catch regional. <laughs> yeah. I actually didn't look which one, but I didn't. No. I have a whole rant about That's Acela okay. and the uh, reasons I don't like the Acela, but She's that is wrong not about it, a but... topic of general <laughs> it's, it's interest to the country. Uh, <laughs> that is the most bubble topic that's ever been conceived. You know, yeah. the Charles Murray quiz, the bubble quiz yeah. should have yeah. had a question. Do you know what the Acela is? Yeah. Um, it actually might have. <laughs> I don't remember. I, t- I took the quiz. Yeah. And I don't, I don't remember there being an Acela question, but um, I did want to hit one last thing, which was uh, there There was a decision today. Uh, so um, there's a private lending company, Navient, that 
uh, took on a lot of the student loans when those student loans were still quasi private. So <laughs> what, what happened is, you know, there used to be a private a long time ago, there was a private lending market for student loans. That hasn't been the case for a long time. So companies like Navient were really much more akin to, for those of us who are old enough to remember, more akin to Fannie and Freddie yes. in, in the, um, you know, late 2000s uh, meltdown, right? Um, and recession. They're more akin to kind of private arms uh, that are super heavily regulated and interact with the Department of Education. Uh, but under Obama, all of those loans got bought up by the Department of Education itself. So like if you hold 93 or 4% of student loans are now actively held by the Department of Education um, instead of any company, including Navient. But Navient is, it was labeled a a predatory lending organization um, and and had to pay, is going to have to pay, I think $1.6 billion or something like that, a large settlement um, to people who are, it preyed on with its loans. Now, It's not that I don't think those loans, actually, I think there is a reasonable case that they are predatory, but it's the entire system that is predatory. And I just see this as such a terrible scapegoating. It's the same thing that that we try to do with for-profit universities, Mm -hmm. right? Both the Obama and Biden administrations, they try to find that one like actor that fits in with their worldview when in reality, what they really need to understand, um, you know, not that they will because they they have an interest in the opposite direction, um, is is that the <laughs> the real predatory institutions here are the universities themselves yes. and not just for-profit universities, four-year nonprofit universities. What they are engaged in making money hand over fist on the basis of taxpayer funded student loans that then screw everybody but the universities, right? The students come out with higher and higher debt because the the student loans push up the price of tuition. So it, it I think the left is right when they make arguments like student loan debt has prevented millennials from buying houses and forming families. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's a real thing. Um, but the question is, how do we solve that problem? Yep. And they are clinging to this idea which they advance almost with with um, sort of lower socioeconomic status lenders as the shield, uh, where they are always talking about that. When in reality, any of these solutions are just handing huge gobs of cash, essentially to the children of the upper middle class. Yes. That, that's literally what it is. I don't have much to add, on, add to that at all, because you, again, you know, you're way more well-versed in this Sorry, issue this is than I am. a wonky episode. But I, I, it <laughs> reminds me of the student debt forgiveness argument the left makes and that ha- they have rehashed in light of President's, President Biden's decision whether or not to extend this moratorium on student debt repayment forgiveness. Um, it's, it, it's incredible because it's just about, it's being in bed with a special interest. It's, in, it's, it's pro higher education, our corrupt system of higher education in this country, it's basically a bailout for them because they don't need to reform jack. If you do this, it's a transfer uh, to the upper middle class, absolutely. But it's also just giving this industry license to continue preying on the entire industry. All of higher ed is predatory because the average student is graduating with some $30,000 in debt for degrees that don't actually meaningfully impact the career trajectory or their earning potential. And it's it's a lie. It is corrupt. It's a lie. And it's a, it's a, it, the Democrats are beholden to the special interest of higher education. And that's all this is. It's just, a, it's just a handout to them. It's, it's even worse than that because what's happening as the number of degrees expand is we've put everyone on a credentialing treadmill, right? So the oh, exact yeah. same job yep. that, that would have given somebody who had a high school diploma that first start on the the you know ladder up to the great American dream. Not yeah. to to mix too many cliches in one uh, you know in one sitting here, but it it that job and now requires a degree and therefore requires that you go into sometimes six figure debt and the salaries do not keep up with it. So we're on this treadmill yep. of of making it harder and harder to succeed. But again, we are focused on the the problems of essentially upper middle class people. Yeah. Um, and, and there, I am not, you know, look, I've definitely talked a lot more about class than I, I once did. <laughs> uh, it seems more and more relevant every day, but the numbers on this are 
undeniable. So for, for example, student loan forgiveness is going to shovel $7 to the top quintile for every single dollar that goes to anybody in the bottom quintile. Yeah. The, the, the fact is that overwhelmingly, it is the children of the upper middle class who are getting the degrees and going into debt. And, and actually, a lot of that debt is from law school and medical school. Yep. You are literally charging mechanics yep. to bail out lawyers. Earning potential is what matters. The left has a lot of misleading studies right. on this. So th- what they'll do is count count the you know the lawyers straight out of law school um, who perhaps clerks for a year or or works for a nonprofit um, who's making it like for example the ACLU. ACLU famously pays really low. Um, like some of the folks who who are straight out of law school work for the ACLU, they're paying like they're getting paid forty five or fifty thousand dollars, but their earning potential is much much higher. Yep. Yep. Um, so it's it's not a fair accounting in a way. Uh, but you know, let's 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 wrap it up on this one. Um, every every month, I ask you. Um, and I give my own view on what what hasn't really broken into the mainstream or something that deserves a different angle or more coverage than it's than it's gotten. Um, am I stumping you on this? Because I, I totally can do mine first and you can think you about do it. Because I'm going back and forth <laughs> between two. I'm going I'm going between two. You this is the first. advantage of doing this in person. Not yes. only can we cheers in person, I can see it on your face. You like <laughs> it's really beautiful. Um, but. So mine uh, is is something um, that I, I really enjoyed the analysis of this piece because uh, it's something that like what we just talked about with student loans, I, I understand very well in other contexts and kind of understand in, in the media context and in the like so much today um, really does reward. And I, I, I am now a total Burnham you know, stand and I'm going to use the word managerial class to describe it because <laughs> I think it's the best way to describe the kind of trifecta of academia, um, you know, agencies and bureaucracy, and then kind of a compliant sort of HR bureaucracies that are exist in in um, private corporations as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think these these folks oftentimes they're the same people who rotate between those three poles throughout the course of their career. Um, but I, I I think that's probably the the most valuable way to describe them is is managerial class as opposed to the one percent which. I'm worried enough about the 1%, but I'm worried less about the 1% than I am about the 20%. Yep. Um, because they're the ones who actually make a lot of the policy decisions in this country. And they're the ones who are increasingly self-dealing to them themselves and their kids. So I, I was really um, interested in, and pleased to read this article. And I learned a ton from it uh, over at Current Affairs. And, and the title of the article is Who Actually Gets to Create Black Pop Culture? And the uh, the author is Bert- Bertrand Cooper. Um and what he points out is in the same way that that uh, I just said that student loans, they use your atypical borrower who comes like the, the very small percentage of borrowers who actually come from an impoverished background um, and, and actually are like, you know, trying to pay off their, their usually very small loans. Um and and actually, the, the have a quite sympathetic situation. That in in absence of anything else, I would be sympathetic to to thinking about you know how this predatory industry has has really screwed them, and and how we might be able to rectify some of that. Um, but they're really being used as a shield for the vast beneficiaries who do not face those problems. Um, that's kind of the thesis of this article, but with regard to black pop culture, which is super interesting. So he talks about how all of the statistics that are trotted out by Black Lives Matter or by other other groups or woke groups um, about disparities between, uh, in, for example, blacks and whites in the country relating to poverty, um, interactions with the police, incarceration, right? Um, the solutions that are being advanced are, and, and not just in a sort of rote policy way, but in a very literal way, the jobs that are created are going, again, not to anyone who's actually impacted by any of those social ills. Mm. So when Hollywood, for example, you know, decides that they're they're going to to make the Oscars not hashtag so white, um, and and they're going to award more, um, you know, sort of black directors, for example, um, that has absolutely no impact on. So that 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 um, sort of woke solution has no interaction with the lives of the people who are actually, for example, experience getting locked up 
at higher rates or interacting with the police at higher rates. These are totally different class-based issues. And it's not to say that every issue is a class issue instead of a race issue or whatever else. Um, but I just thought it was a really interesting analysis. And it reminds me so much about, I just think that dynamic is way broader than the the pop culture or the, the black American context. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to see it applied in that context. Uh, so highly recommend this essay from current in current affairs by Bertrand Cooper, who actually gets to create black pop culture. So that's my undercover thing for the week. I love it. And I can't wait to read the essay. It's been on my list for a while because Inez sent it to me. Uh, mine is this way, way to announce that you don't take my recommendations seriously. I do. It's on my reading list, which Inez doesn't have a reading list, but I do as a responsible consumer of media. <laughs> Um, thank you, Apple. Shout out to Apple. Shout out to uh, the, the workers of Xinjiang. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Obviously, Apple is a bad company in so very many ways, and it's always worth remembering. But do that. rate this podcast on Apple. <laughs> do do rate this podcast on Apple. Um, uh, yes. And um, all I'll say is Aaron Wren has a great essay in American Affairs about uh, you just sort of analyzing why Indiana, deep red Indiana, despite this history of uh, conservative, fiscal conservative policies, he has very kind words, I think reasonably so for Mitch Daniels, is not right now an enclave of personal prosperity. He crunches the numbers. It's a great reckoning. Um, it's a great invitation for conservatives to reckon with uh, whether those policies of fiscal conservatism or those the dogma of fiscal conservatism is still uh, nakedly fiscal, if the best policies are still naked fiscal conservative policies in this era of deindustrialization and cultural chaos, which has hit a place like Indiana particularly hard. So I highly recommend you all go check that out. And uh, I'm going to let you get to your train on us. <laughs> well, I, I, I got to transfer to sell a corridor like the bubble denizen that I am. <laughs> um, but Thanks for tuning in to this After Dark episode. And, and like all episodes of High Noon, uh, is this is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. And as always, you can send comments and questions to inez.setman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button, leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. That last one is the only one that isn't an evil company, uh, but we need <laughs> them to survive. Uh, and, and so... We can use we can use them uh, to, to get out our message. So uh, but until next time, be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.